Welcome to Global Conversations from Scotland, brought to you by the Scottish Council on Global Affairs. Follow us via scga.scot or on social media. And now the podcast. Good morning and welcome to the latest podcast from the Scottish Council on Global Affairs. And today we're joined by one of our colleagues from the University of St Andrews, Dr Adam who's a senior lecturer in international relations there. Adam has been working on the issue of commercial space systems and their role in foreign armed conflicts and has held several workshops on this topic already. Good morning, Adam. Good morning, John. Thank you for having me. It's really good to be with you. And I suppose just to start things off, this is a this is a really timely issue. I think it's one that's really coming into people's consciousness now. Just, you know, what, what brought you to the subject in the first place? Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think more just as by way of slight background, I've been working, my, my research has largely been in the area of the regulation of armed violence. And I, I worked previously on issues around conventional weapons disarmament and did some work on the International Criminal Court as an international mechanism for sort of responding to atrocity crime. But in recent years, I was sort of looking around and trying to think of something that was a bit new to me, at least. And I didn't know much about space systems. I'm not a science fiction fan necessarily, but a, a few friends and colleagues were sort of having conversations about what was changing in the international system. And I was sort of caught up in this idea that we were really in the midst of a rapid change in the human uses of outer space. And particularly by this, I mean the orbits around Earth and just looking at the sheer volume of uh, satellites that are being launched uh, now, uh, really increasing tempo over the recent years and the applications that come with this. And I thought that was quite exciting. And then in digging into it a bit more, it became apparent that a great deal of that increasing use, human use of uh, Earth orbit is coming by way of commercial operators. People are probably familiar with companies like SpaceX, for example, in particular, the company owned by Elon Musk, which we'll be speaking about, I think, a little bit in, the, in this conversation ahead. Um, and what then interested me, though, is, is, is being someone who's concerned by international armed conflict and uh, particularly, of course, the events starting in February of 2022 and Russia's full scale invasion of Ukraine. That actually offered a really interesting opportunity to bring these different concerns together, because what we found quite quickly was that as Western support for Ukraine scaled up um, on the space side of these things, it had been, by the way, just by by sort of parenthetically, this had been a trend in, in recent times to be speaking more and more about space becoming a key enabler of military and intelligence capabilities in Western countries, but also in, in China, Russia, Federation and, and elsewhere. So in the context of Ukraine, what we found is as Western governments were looking for ways to support Ukraine without committing boots on the ground, committing military forces directly, one of the ways that they found to provide support was through commercial contracts with Western space companies. And so this kind of combined a few different interests that I had had and trying to think then through this phenomenon and what we saw very early in the war with companies like SpaceX agreeing to provide um, access to their Starlink broadband internet constellation for the Ukrainian government, for Ukrainian civil society, but also for the Ukrainian military, and then publicly announced contracts with companies from Canada, the United States, Finland and elsewhere, providing a variety of satellite enabled services, especially either telecommunications or Earth observation, optical imagery, synthetic aperture radar and other things that proved to be immensely beneficial and consequential to the Ukrainian war effort. And so and I guess that's sort of a slightly long way of saying that what brought me to this was really a, a, an attempt to try to think of something 
knew that I could investigate with the, with the kind of areas of interest that I had, and then unfortunate events in the world providing a really valuable test case to think through some of these political and economic and indeed legal dynamics that I think are really reshaping the way we're thinking about uh, modern warfare, but modern global politics more broadly. So in terms of our the, the general public awareness of, of this whole issue, which as you say has been really prompted by events in Ukraine last year, is were we always moving towards the sense of um, closer integration or cooperation between commercial and military interests, or has it taken a, uh, a a defining moment like a continental land war on the continent of Europe, or indeed is it taken a defining person in the you know in Elon Musk to, to sort of push their way into that picture for it to become really a, a public awareness? Because I'm I'm sure there's been a lot of well I know there's been a lot of work um, between commercial interests and military interests over the years, but this is probably the first time it's really hit public consciousness. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And so in a sense, I would say it's both been a, a, an overall trend in this direction, but then that the Ukrainian conflict provides a really public and vital example of how this this can work in practice. And so uh, just to go back a little bit, you're absolutely right to say that commercial interests have been involved in the space sector and indeed the military industrial complex for a very long time. Um, there were commercial space uh, assets as early as the 1960s, providing things like um, telecommunications. Uh, we think of sort of satellite broadcast television, but also communications both for military and civilian use. And indeed, going back as far as the, the, the United States war in Vietnam, the U.S. military was making some limited use of those kinds of capabilities. Um, really, the where you start to see something of a change is the 1991 Gulf War, which is often referred to as the first space war. And and usually when people say that, they what they mean is that that was the war where the United States demonstrated the, the use of its global positioning system, GPS, uh, satellite-based position navigation uh, systems at scale. This was the first time that U.S. military forces really were deploying with um, GPS receivers so that they could navigate in the desert. It was the sort of global introduction of precision guided munitions at scale that were using GPS. Uh, but it's also perhaps less well known that the, a, a quite a bit of American military communications during the war actually was run, routed through commercial satellite operators because of because of the restrictions that US military had in terms of their own bandwidth capability. So this isn't something entirely new, but I do think what is new is there's sort of really two things. One is the sheer scale of what we're talking about, because really in very recent times, literally the last 10 years, but especially the last five years, we're seeing a, a tremendous increase in the total volume of satellites launched to orbit, as I already indicated. This is largely driven by commercial operators. And from that, we're seeing a huge range of new applications that are, are providing a, a tremendous range of capabilities that were not held at such scale before. So everything from optical imagery to things like hyperspectral imagery, which is using a wider range of the um, light frequency spectrum that the eye can't see. Um, synthetic aperture radar, which we'll probably talk about maybe again over this conversation, which is a means of satellites to, in effect, see, if you like, through cloud cover at night because they're not using optical imagery. And then, of course, as you mentioned, Elon Musk and Starlink with their telecommunications internet service, which is it's just something that's, at least in the way they're doing it, is really quite new. So one thing is an acceleration of scale. I think the other thing that's really important and different here is that this is an instance where Western companies 
are providing vital services in a war where the Western countries that are the, the, the home of these companies, those governments are not directly in, involved in the war themselves. They're not formal parties to the conflict. They're obviously picking a side. And Western companies, Western governments are supporting Ukraine against, and I, I should say quite rightly, supporting Ukraine against Russia's illegal invasion. But this is an instance where the countries in question are not formally at war. And I think that's different. And that's something that struck me and my colleagues when we were putting together the workshop is something that required specific attention, because this is an area where I think we may see increasing examples in future. Ukraine will not by any means be the last time that commercial operators involve themselves in either armed conflicts or even situations that are sensitive politically in instances where for now that aligns with government interests, government foreign policy. But one could easily imagine scenarios where that isn't the case in future. And so our idea was that we needed to be having conversations now about thinking through systematically the ways in which commercial operators and governments would relate and how governments might seek to, on the one hand, leverage these amazing capabilities but also be to planning for the future in which they may not have uh, full alignment between government goals and commercial incentives. So that's really the kind of overarching motivation. And I think, as I say, that this is a, a time of really quite exciting change, but it poses some real challenges as well. And that was our intention was to try to unpack some of those challenges um, without offering full solutions, more so in the, in the mode of suggesting pathways forward that we need to consider. So in, in a way, there is a a comparison, if you like, with some of the commentary we get at the moment about uh, regulation and and state governments failing to keep up with advances. So whether it's cyber aspects, ransomware, AI, whatever, um, it's almost like we're back where we were 30 years ago with terrorism. We know things to be bad, but we don't know yet how to regulate or legislate against them specifically. And so, I mean, you, you've identified whole range of issues there. I mean, they're, they're not just technical, but they're legal, but they're also political as well. There's a there's a political obligation here, both for individual governments, but really for, for broader discussion as well. That's right. And I think one thing to mention that's, that's something that I was not aware of until I really started to, to dig into this area is that there's actually a sort of a unique element to international space law that differs from a lot of other international law and governance. And that's that, that the in under international space law, all actors that operate in space are ultimately the responsibility of their home government, the government that registers them for, for international purposes through the United Nations. And so this is important because ultimately responsibility in a political and legal sense and indeed strict legal liability applies to the states, not necessarily directly to the companies, at least by in the mode of public international law. So if SpaceX chooses to operate in a particular way and gets itself into trouble, whether that's by um, causing an accident in space or something else, ultimately it's the US government as the government of home registration that will be held um, accountable through through the limited mechanisms that exist under international space law. And that's different than sometimes how we think of other domains of international law. Um, it doesn't necessarily provide us clear solutions as to what to do, but what it does suggest is that um, indeed, while commercial space operators may increasingly have capabilities that match or even in some instances surpass their home governments, the way we think about it for legal and often sort of geopolitical terms is that it's ultimately still the United States or United Kingdom or indeed the Russian Federation or any other country that is the, the actor of ultimate responsibility. And that I think is a challenge and a puzzle that we haven't yet fully grappled with as we start to think of an increasing amount of space activity 
occurring outside of formal government capabilities. That's a that's a scale change, but it's also, I think, a governance challenge that uh, we'll be needing to deal with in, in the coming years and decades. And is there a is there an international a serious international movement in terms of seeking to not regulate but try and oversee these kind of developments or is it actually in the interest of individual states to more or less keep to the, the policies in their own internal operations that they've had up until now? Well, it's a really great question. I mean, I think if you if you take a step back, you often hear kind of colloquially actors, uh, even governments, even even senior military officials, for example, referring to space as sort of like the wild, wild west, that there's implicitly, therefore, a very limited number of rules and norms that govern outer space activity. And I think on one level, that's kind of broadly correct. This is not as as densely legalized an area as, for example, land domains are on Earth or the high seas, for example, something like this. But it's not really correct to suggest that there's no institutional and governance framework. There are treaties, the Outer Space Treaty being the most important from 1967, um, and a series of subsidiary treaties or, or follow-on treaties, I should say. Um, but interestingly, those all negotiated through the United Nations um, during the Cold War, uh, really the last of those coming in, in the 19, in 1979 with the Moon Agreement, which is not widely endorsed. There are, however, a range of institutional responses currently. I mean, there's there's a United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs. There's a Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. These issues are addressed at the Conference on Disarmament at the UN, the UN General Assembly First and Fourth Committees. There are a range of um, ad hoc or short-term working groups and diplomatic meetings, um, some of which have, have recently actually won in particular the open-ended working group on reducing space threats, which was a United Kingdom-led initiative um, which produced a series of meetings over 2022 and 2023. There's a lot going on. I think there's a wide awareness, but the, the, I see a couple of principal challenges. I mean, at a sort of macro level, there's a geopolitical fragmentation. There's a there's a sort of a uh, if you like blocks that map onto a variety of issues in international affairs. Um, Western states, led led often but not always by the United States, tend to prefer for now a relatively permissive approach. To outer space activities. The United States is, is, is I think, generally of the view that it is important to develop new voluntary measures, best practices, um, transparency, confidence building measures, norms, but has always been more resistant to developing new legal treaties to regulate outer space, particularly in sort of the military or security dimensions. Um, China and the Russian Federation have taken a view for a long time that a, a legally binding multilateral treaty is the preferred way forward. They've proposed a text to ban the placement of weapons in outer space since uh, the mid 2000s. Um, they have reasonable amount of endorsement from global South states, for example, but that has never really managed to garner support from Western governments for, for a variety of reasons. Um, my point then would be that on one level, there's kind of a, a debate between a law versus norms approach, a legally binding versus more gradual building up of voluntary mechanisms and measures. Um, the open-ended working group that I, I briefly mentioned before had set as its target the desire to bring governments and other actors together to discuss responsible and irresponsible behaviors, how different actors understand threats in space or responsible and irresponsible behaviors in space, space with the idea of articulating a set of potential norms that could be negotiated or developed. Um, that unfortunately didn't conclude with a, with a sort of an affirmative program of work or a report to, to guide next steps, but there may be opportunities to pick up on that in future. Um, more particularly to your question, I think it is now well recognized that the integration of commercial actors in outer space 
on the security side, but indeed on other aspects as well, economic issues. So for example, human space exploration, private space stations, space um, settlements on the moon, or even if Elon Musk has his way eventually on Mars, natural resource extraction, the building of these mega constellations like Starlink in Earth orbit. These are all things that are driven in large measure by commercial operators. I think there's a widespread recognition that that needs to be addressed. But as I mentioned before, one of the challenges is that is that under international space law, it ultimately is the governments that are responsible for these activities. Um, there is therefore a sort of, on the one hand, a recognition that commercial operators, I think, need to be integrated into these discussions more directly. But at the same time, a sort of traditionalist hesitance to have additional actors beyond states involved in multilateral negotiations. So as I see it, there's a kind of set of differing debates right now about what is the preferred approach for international diplomacy, law and treaties versus norm building, but also questions about how to integrate various actors. And indeed, sometimes a question as to whether the commercial operators actually want to be directly represented in these meetings or would actually prefer their governments to set the rules that the commercial operators can then work towards. So there's definitely recognition. There's a lot of activity happening at some of those institutions that I've mentioned and, and many others besides. There are commercial consortia that develop their own best practices around particular areas, uh, around information sharing and development of satellites, for example. So there's a lot going on. In the specific question as to how commercial operators are going to work in national security environments, particularly in times of war, I think this is one that has been sensitive and there are undoubtedly conversations ongoing. It's certainly something governments recognize and commercial operators do as well. But the sensitivities around it mean that it's difficult to have open conversations. Um, one of the intentions of the workshop that, that is sort of the, the foundation of our conversation was to bring some of these actors together in a private setting. Uh, and so while I can't speak about the particulars of what we discussed, um, I think it's fair to say that there is this recognition that there needs to be greater coordination, a greater sort of understanding of how different actors perceive the integration of commercial capabilities in national security. But I don't think yet there's a, a clear sense of the preferred way forward. And that's a real challenge for governments themselves, but also for the international community uh, writ large. Yeah, and, and I suppose where you've you've had the interaction between operators like like NASA going to commercial interest to help them out, but you've in, in a more, I suppose to, to use a slightly loaded term, a more benign sense, where at the same time, you suddenly see the involvement of commercial interests, as you say, at the very sharp end in terms of war footings. I mean, that's, you know, it, the, the use of space has never been unusual in that. I mean, I, I guess Gary Powers and you too was flying on the edges of space, whatever it was, 70 years ago. And ever since then, you mentioned the Gulf War, there's been a sort of in, increasing use of both surveillance, but also, and now we see that combination with surveillance and communications. Um, but it is, it does seem to be a, a, a dilemma where, you know, are the commercial operators taking the lead or are the governments taking the lead with the assistance of commercial operators? And um, I guess in, in, in any spaces like that, in international law and regulation, that's where problems start to develop in the gaps. Indeed. And I think what's been so interesting about the war in Ukraine, and this, and this really comes back to your initial question about why, why pay attention to this right now, is that undoubtedly this is a tremendously important international development. But it gives us this exact example of the way in which commercial operators are being used to supplement and extend state capabilities. So, uh, you know, 
I, I mentioned already SpaceX and the provision of its Starlink internet broadband uh, constellation. That is the internet backbone for Ukraine now, both for civilian and military uses. It's utterly vital to the, the continuance of governance functions in Ukraine. Uh, for individual people to remain in contact with loved ones, to have, frankly, diversions in their lives in the form of entertainment. But the Ukrainian military has also been very explicit publicly that without Starlink, they have limited means of communicating. And so this is a system that is both enabling societal health and functioning, but also is a vital element of the military capability of Ukraine. And, you know, if you think about overhead Earth observation, what's interesting to me is that um, it is probably the case, though we don't have much public evidence of the fact that Western governments may be providing access to their own intelligence and reconnaissance capabilities. U.S. government is most certainly providing Ukraine with some measures of its own satellite intelligence capabilities. But one thing we do know is that when it's a sensitive national security asset, the United States needs to take quite a bit of pains to remove information that might help anyone seeing that subsequent image, for example, removing in, um, sort of the means and uh, capabilities of a, of c collection. And so there's a process if the United States wants to use one of its own sensitive, you know, keyhole satellites and provide imagery from that, uh, it would take time for that image to be, if you like, scrubbed before it can be passed along to even a, a partner like the Ukrainian government, because the United States needs to keep and protect very carefully its its own capabilities and assets. Now, if they're providing imagery collected by a commercial operator, that consideration probably doesn't hold any longer. What's interesting to me is that we have seen public announcements of governments and commercial operators saying explicitly, we have a contract by which to provide the Ukrainian armed forces with earth observation or optical synthetic aperture radar imagery that can be utilized to prosecute the war. And this is not something that's being um, kept quiet. There are the comp companies are announcing this. To take one example, uh, Canadian company MDA, right at the beginning of the war, announced that they would be providing access to that one of their synthetic aperture radar satellites for the Ukrainian armed forces. Subsequently, the Canadian government announced that that would be considered uh, part of Canada's military contribution to the war effort. That they would be buying MDA's synthetic aperture radar capabilities to provide for Ukraine. Um, Finnish company ISI announced uh, early, I think it was in February 2022, maybe March, that they were going to be providing um, full access to one of their satellites in their in their synthetic aperture radar constellation full time to the Ukrainian armed forces and would provide access to um, capabilities in the rest of their constellation uh, through a contract that had been provided by a Ukrainian philanthropic organization, which had pivoted to providing and resourcing military aid for the Ukrainian war effort. These are instances where companies are publicly saying that they're providing these capabilities. Governments are announcing that this is part of their contribution to Ukraine's defense. Um, and that's interesting because that exposes arguably the companies to concerns for their own vulnerability as potentially under, under limited but potentially specific circumstances that they now, these companies may now be legitimate targets in the war. That's certainly a position that the Russian Federation has taken, that if SpaceX is providing militarily relevant communications at a moment in time, that its constellation of satellites could be a legitimate target. If MDA is using a very sophisticated, very expensive satellite to provide the Ukrainian armed forces with a, with a militarily relevant capability to help identify and target 
Russian military assets, that may in turn make that satellite a legitimate military target. That is something I think that is new and something that we have to grapple with both as a, a specific legal question, which frankly, the very details of fall outside of my own expertise, but I, you know, speaking with international lawyers, and I think it's reasonable to say that there are grounds, at least under defined specific circumstances, where commercial operators would be potentially legitimate targets under the laws of armed conflict. And that, again, that's something that's new that we have to grapple with. So there are, I think, a number of interesting and cross-cutting challenges here that how governments can, on the one hand, leverage these capabilities, make use of them in really beneficial ways, but at the same time, have to think seriously about the legal exposure and the political consequences of these choices. And of course, for companies as well. This is has been an incredible demonstration of capabilities. And I'm not suggesting at all that, that, that companies are cynically providing a capability to Ukraine simply as a business case, but it does demonstrate the value of, for example, Starlink or Maxar or Black Sky or Planet, optical imagery companies from the United States that are providing huge amounts of overhead imagery that can be in the hands of a Ukrainian operator within maybe 10 minutes, 20 minutes of collection. That's a, that's a real capability that's hugely beneficial. That is a demonstration to potential other clients, not just in national security, but in any number of other domains. Um, but that of course exposes companies to real risk and vulnerabilities to their assets in space, to their ground stations that control satellites, but also potentially to their personnel. And that's something that I know companies are taking seriously and thinking about. But there aren't easy answers. And presumably also on the flip side of that, you have the potential that that individual governments may be in part subject to the whims of the owners or the shareholders of the company. There's a there's a commercial pressure on the other side that that pushes in a direction which I don't can't think of a comparison in in recent foreign affairs, certainly. Absolutely. I think this is this is a big vulnerability and dependency that comes from the reliance on commercial assets. I, mean, I think the most obvious example in that regard is, again, SpaceX and Starlink. Um, Elon Musk is is known for flights of fancy and and being a rather um, public in his in his uh, views. Um, and listeners might remember that um, about a year ago now, um, while SpaceX had already been providing Starlink coverage for since the beginning of the war, uh, Elon Musk actually went on Twitter because, of course, everything now would have to happen on happen on Twitter, um, went on Twitter to say, in effect, well, you know, our continued provision of, of Starlink coverage over Ukraine is just too costly. We're spending tons of money on this. We're not being compensated and uh, we're not sure that this is worth it anymore. And. Um, I don't think it's probably accurate to say that SpaceX was giving away this capability totally for free. I think the United States government was undoubtedly compensating SpaceX in various ways, but but undoubtedly some of this was coming from SpaceX directly on a on a, on a pro bono basis. Um, that threat to withdraw services, um, initially citing cost concerns, raised real alarm bells in Kyiv and in Washington and indeed in other Western capitals. Now, quite quickly. Musk came out again on Twitter and said something to the effect of, oh, well, never mind, we'll just continue to take this loss at many millions of dollars a year, fine. And, you know, that went away for a little while. But then again, this past spring, the president of um, of, of SpaceX, uh, Gwyn Shotwell, uh, said publicly that SpaceX was quite concerned that the Ukrainian military was using Starlink for, as she characterized it, offensive military purposes, when the intention had always been that Starlink would be a defensive capability. Now, I don't think you can make clear distinctions between offense and defense in this in this context. 
context, especially in the context of telecommunications. But it's undoubtedly the case that the Ukrainian armed forces use Starlink in order to control drones that are flying over the battlefield. They use that as, a, as the video link for drones back to commanders on the ground who can identify targets and then call in, for example, artillery strikes. It's a vital component of military command and control. So these are intensely important capabilities. But again, that was an instance where SpaceX was hinting or threatening that they may remove the capability because they weren't comfortable with the geopolitical implications. More recently, we know from public reporting that the Ukrainian armed forces asked SpaceX to turn on the Starlink system over Crimean territory, illegally annexed occupied territory uh, that is currently held by the Russian Federation. Um, and that all the way to the top of the company with Elon Musk, it was decided that this would be rejected, that SpaceX would not turn on the capability beyond the point at which they determined that Ukrainian forces held territory. And the reason that Musk gave publicly was that he didn't want to start World War III by having a Western capability, a commercial capability, um, being provided in order for Ukraine to off use the capability, Starlink, to pilot remote uh, uh, drones on the ocean and sub subsurface to attack Russian naval vessels. We might think that Musk was correct or not. I mean, we can make judgment calls on the basis of his his articulation of the risk in that instance. But this is a case where a commercial operator was making meaningful interventions in the war effort, actually in this instance preventing uh, an attack that relied on Starlink in order to be effective um, and, and therefore prevented a particular attack that at least Ukrainian officials felt was very important to advancing their war aims. Um, that, I think, is a, is a tremendously interesting and important thing that we have to grapple with. And if I could make one last point on this, it's that it's these decisions were not happening in a vacuum. I mentioned before that the Russian Federation has said um, publicly on a number of occasions in diplomatic fora that if companies like Starlink are providing a meaningful capability to one side in the war effort, they are legitimate targets, at least under some conditions. We know that SpaceX has been the subject of a number of probably ongoing cyber attacks attributed to actors within the Russian Federation. Um, SpaceX has said publicly that they've been able to defeat those attacks, but undoubtedly this is something that they take seriously, that they know that they are vulnerable to attacks. It's not only SpaceX. I think most commercial space operators would acknowledge that cyber attacks and forms of jamming or interference of that kind are very widespread now. They're not limited to the war in Ukraine, um, but that may in turn be shaping cost-benefit calculations, and it may well be part of SpaceX's decision around where and how Starlink can be utilized now and in the future will be shaped by their own political preferences, which may not align with Western governments, although they do at least broadly right now, but it may also be shaped, and perhaps appropriately so, by their own cost-benefit calculations, risk to their own assets and personnel and the business case that underpins what they're doing, because ultimately Starlink is a commercial product. It has been designed and deployed for to make money. And it, right now it's happening to provide an incredibly valuable contribution to what I regard as, as, as a, a very legitimate and necessary resistance against aggression. It may well be, though, in the future that we don't see that alignment of interests anymore. Sure, sure. Very interesting. I mean, one last aspect of that before we bring it to the, to the local. Um, we've seen in the nuclear energy industry we've seen to a certain extent in the in the offshore oil industry a, a slight tension between government and interests in terms of 
the post-industrial cleanup and where you go from how you transition. And presumably we're starting to get to that point already with with space. I mean, if you're even if you're an amateur and you look at one of these apps that shows you satellites going overhead, there's a Starlink one about every five minutes, as far as I can see. So presumably there's an issue there for the for the community, and it's not just a commercial issue in terms of just the the, the population of space. Absolutely. I mean, I think space sustainability is a tremendously important and fascinating area of research, and it cuts across a huge range of environmental, scientific, and other concerns. One thing I would say just in general is that it also now intersects increasingly with security. There used to be an idea, I think, in space governance that you kept the safety and security stuff separate from the national security debates. And there's government reasons for this, that wanting to control narratives and diplomatic endeavors and so forth. I think, though, increasingly we're finding that these just intersect in ways that can't be kept separate. So in the specific context of these mega, the so-called mega constellations, of which Starlink is the most advanced right now, these are going to be constellations of many thousands of satellites operating in low Earth orbit. And the reason for that is satellites at low orbits, you know, and here we're talking about 500 kilometers above the, the Earth's surface, they are moving very quickly. They're moving at something like seven or eight kilometers per second. So they they orbit around the Earth in about 90 minutes. And that means that the satellite doesn't remain overhead for very long. As you say, one's passing overhead every few minutes. Therefore, you need a great many of them in order to provide continuous global coverage. SpaceX currently operates just shy of 5,000 satellites. That's more than half of all the satellites in orbit. One company, one actor. So it's a huge player. SpaceX has regulatory approval for close to I think 30,000 satellites and if you look at all the regulatory filings across the world right now we can see between 500,000 and a million satellites being planned now they won't all make it to orbit on near-term timescales but even just SpaceX alone while providing this very valuable service is radically changing the way in which we're going to access low earth orbit so one thing to think about would be SpaceX operates their constellations in quite De narrowly defined orbital altitudes, what they call orbital shells. Now, if you have 5,000, maybe then 10,000, perhaps 20,000 satellites operating in a relatively defined vertical amount of altitude, it may become more difficult for other actors to operate in and around that same altitude. Or it may be difficult for other operators to move their satellites through the altitude that the SpaceX constellation occupies. Now, Elon Musk and SpaceX will say, look, we have very sophisticated collision avoidance software on all of our satellites. Uh, we can we can fit an awful lot of satellites into low Earth orbit. And it, it might be, but we've already seen a number of instances where there have been close calls of collisions between SpaceX satellites or indeed other satellites. And SpaceX is by no means the worst behavior, worst actor here. But there's also a set of problems that are environmental in nature. Um, these satellites in low orbits aren't staying up there permanently. Uh, so they are going to be typically deorbited back into the Earth atmosphere and burn up. Now, SpaceX does this regularly. It's um, it, it seems to work quite well. Uh, the difficulty is that doing this at the kind of scale that mega constellations will demand means that we're going to be burning up a huge amount of aluminum and other forms of material into the upper atmosphere. And of course, none of this disappears. It just turns into very small particles. Um, we don't know what the consequences will be of depositing perhaps many tons of aluminum into the upper atmosphere every day. Uh, it, it, it has been noted that the, the introduction of aluminum particles has been thought of, at least hypothetically, as a way of conducting geoengineering. Um, we're going to be conducting a form of a geoengineering experiment in the upper atmosphere now 
in the in the years and decades to come. That is a potentially significant challenge. That doesn't even address the environmental costs of launching rockets to space and other forms of debris that might be produced along the way. SpaceX, in many respects, is, is one of the best actors in this regard. They, they have perfected a capability to return the bulk of their rocket back to Earth under a controlled landing. It's an incredible technology. It's a huge cost savings. It's what makes SpaceX by far the most competitive on a cost point for space launch. Um, it's what makes the Starlink system kind of cost effective for launching. But it introduces a variety of other environmental challenges. I think the, the point I would make then is, as we think about the security consequences of mega constellations or indeed other forms of satellite capability, we are increasingly having to confront the environmental and broader sustainability challenges that come from this accelerating use of Earth orbit. And that comes in the form of a really radically increasing number of launches and number of satellites and therefore all of the downstream consequences of that in terms of burning those back up in the Earth's atmosphere. That is a set of challenges that um, have traditionally been dealt with by different communities, I think it's fair to say. Um, I sense that there's a growing interest in how we integrate those conversations, how we think about sustainability and safety as also security challenges. And there might be appropriately ways in which these are separate, but increasingly as well, they are ones that have to be dealt with together. Just lastly, I think you mentioned briefly, John, that there is also ways in which the, you can see these satellites. And indeed, one of the additional challenges comes from the fact that artificial satellites in our, in our orbits above Earth are reflecting sunlight. And while many of them are not visible to the naked eye, although sometimes they are, we know already that these mega constellations are having a huge negative impact on telescopic observations using optical and radio telescopes. So these are now the majority of images from many of the most exquisite Earth-based um, telescopes are being distorted by the lines from these satellites passing overhead. This is also a problem for some indigenous communities that use the night sky as, as, as a focal point for their their world building, for their knowledge systems, for for indeed their religious practices and even things like navigation. There's even some suggestions that some species on Earth may rely on the night sky for their own migratory patterns. So there are a variety of challenges. Um, there aren't easy answers to these. What I do think is interesting is how we consider these in the broader context of the kind of security considerations that you and I have been speaking about uh, chiefly during this conversation. It's absolutely fascinating. And I had there's so many aspects there that I hadn't even stopped to to consider to at the risk of being parochial now um maybe finish up by bringing it slightly closer to home i mean we know a bit about the existence of the european space agency the work that, that europe generally has done in remote sensing and ground monitoring and all these sorts of things we know that the uk has maintained a role in that despite Brexit because it's not strictly an EU operation, but we're, for instance, not part of, of Galileo. And obviously, Scotland itself has been pushing to present itself as a commercial centre for possibly for space activity. So you, what, what, in terms of closer to home, what, what kind of developments should we be looking out for when we expect both on the on the Europe, on the continental side, given that it does seem that United States seems to be leading the, the world in this area. But also, what implications are there for Scotland in this? Is this really a potentially huge growth area? Absolutely. And I think, you know, listeners might have been wondering, well, we're having this conversation and why is the Scottish Council so interested in this? We haven't mentioned the UK or Scotland much at all. And on, on one level, 
yes, indeed, the, in the context of the war in Ukraine, the, it, to my knowledge, at least, there isn't much public information to suggest that UK or Scottish-based companies are actively providing the kinds of in, um, information and services to the war effort that I've been mentioning. But actually, Scotland and the UK more broadly is a very important location for the global space industry. Um, there is a reason why we held a workshop in Edinburgh uh, to discuss this. Scotland is, a, as you say, positioning itself as a major lead in sustainable space activities. There are currently two vertical launch facilities being built, one in Shetland, one in the Sutherland area and the peninsula in northern uh, mainland Scotland. Um, at Glasgow, Presswick Airport has been designated as a, as a site for so-called horizontal launch, which is where you strap a rocket basically to the underside of a large plane like a Boeing 747. This is something that Virgin Orbit was going to do, but they've since unfortunately gone bankrupt. But nonetheless, this capability may be developed further. Um, more small satellites are built in Glasgow than anywhere else in Europe, and indeed the only other one place in the world exceeds that, and that's Southern California. There are major space companies already here. I think there's. I think the last figure I saw suggested there are over 130 space companies based in Scotland, and they range from companies like Skyrora and Orbex who are building their own rockets, um, ultimately to, to launch to orbit, to the commercial space launch facilities that I mentioned to small sat satellite manufacturers, including AAC Clyde, Inspire, and others. And then a variety of downstream applications, data processing, data management, data analytics, in hubs, including in Edinburgh and elsewhere. There's a lot going on. Uh, there's geographic reasons for this. Um, I won't get into all the details, but basically the short version is that um, for getting small satellites into valuable orbits that pass over the poles of the Earth, which is highly valuable for Earth observation, um, it turns out that northern latitudes are particularly efficient. And so Scotland has great access in that regard because it's northerly, but also the launch trajectories would carry them out over open water, which has its own environmental considerations, but is much safer than launching rockets over human populations, as you can imagine. So there's a lot of things that are going on in the Scottish context, in the UK context more broadly. One thing I think personally that is very interesting here is the ways in which two different type, two different governments have to interact. Because of course, for many of the issues that I've been discussing and that we've been discussing, these are, of course, reserved powers for the United Kingdom government, appropriately so, foreign affairs, national defense. So, for example, the Ministry of Defense has done, does lots of work on military space applications and national security. For example, in the, in the kind of context of commercial space applications, they have what they call their own collaborate and access framework, where they think about different ways of systems that might be necessarily developed by the United Kingdom for its own uses ways that they might collaborate with partners or opportunities to access existing commercial off-the-shelf capabilities where appropriate. The Scottish context, of course, is interesting because the government here has, you know, devolved powers over certain issues, but that typically don't extend to national security, foreign affairs and the like. But there are lots of questions around industrial development and economic strategy, sustainability that are at least partly devolved to, to Scottish government. And that you've seen those conversations taking place around whether and how to build space launch facilities, for example, or how to stimulate investment in satellite manufacturing, Earth observation capabilities, da advanced data analytics. This is something that both the United Kingdom government is very interested in and the Scottish government. And, and it, my, my view of it is in the conversations that I've had, decision makers, policymakers, representatives in government, in Ministry of Defense, in ministries of foreign commonwealth office, for example, also things like industrial an economic policy, the UK Space Agency and elsewhere, they're aware of these 
challenges. It just it just so happens that these are really difficult questions and they're ones that are cross cutting as well. And I think that's what's also interesting is they involve various aspects of government. They involve different types of considerations ranging from economics policy to foreign affairs and defense environment and so forth. And they, as I indicated, also involve different levels of government. And that's all complex. Um, what I can say is that my sense is there's a lot of thinking going on. So our workshop was by no means trying to fill a, a total vacuum. It was rather to sort of suggest that there are particular areas where cross-cutting engagement across academia, policymaking, industry, involving specialists of politics and law, engineering, and all sorts of other fields as well, can be helpful. We need the astronomers talking to the lawyers, talking to the government officials, talking to industry representatives and so forth. And I think that's something that is happening here and elsewhere. But Scotland is really a place where 21st century space activities are located. And I think that's exciting. It offers a range of opportunities that go well beyond just national security considerations. That's perfect. Thank you. I mean, that it, it sums up better than I could possibly put into words the kind of the necessary convening power of bringing together the different elements within Scotland, within the United Kingdom and beyond in terms of having the commercial understand the academic, understand the military, understand the governmental. Um, so that's been it's been fascinating. I'm very conscious that I, you probably have actual work to get back to in terms of uh, academia. Is there any any last thing you'd, you'd like to observe before we, we wrap up? I think mainly just to say, as, as I concluded before, that, that one of the reasons to have these conversations in Scotland is that it is it is in many respects a unique place and has a unique position within the United Kingdom and within an international space industry. I think that provides Scotland, if it chooses to take it, with a real opportunity. Um, I think this is also why the Scottish Council is such a valuable institution. So just I could put on record my thanks and my colleagues' thanks for the support that enabled the workshop to take place, but also the more broadly SCOGA as a forum for these kind of conversations. Uh, I think that they're very much ongoing. They intersect with a variety of global issues and indeed a variety of um, things that SCOGA has been working on. So I'm, I'm hopeful that these conversations are only just beginning. I think they're necessary and uh, I look forward to seeing how they develop. I hope so too. And quite literally every day is a school day. I've been, it's been one of the more informative hours I've spent for the last few months. So Adam, thank you very much for that. And uh, we will put some links in the podcast to some of the, the, the information that you've talked about and your, your report eventually in due course will go up on the website as well. But for now, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to Global Conversations from Scotland. Find us at scga.scot and subscribe through your podcast provider.